Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This United States Army Ranger veteran is out to break the stigma of psychedelics. He is the founder and president of Heroic Hearts Project. His story is significant in today's world. He's not a drug pusher. He is a person that's helping people to rebuild their lives through their own traumas. Have a lot of respect for this Army Ranger and uh, have a lot of respect for you too to continue to listen to our show, Straight Out of Combat Radio. You're going to enjoy this episode. Thank you. Your steely eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You got to light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio. Audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all burn it down. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero, is former United States Army Ranger and president of the Heroic Hearts Project, Jesse Gould. Happy to have him here today. He is the founder and the president of this organization, which is a nonprofit pioneering psychedelic therapies for military veterans. And tell you, we're going to talk a little bit about how that formed. But anyhow, after being deployed in Afghanistan three times, he founded this organization in 2017 to spearhead the acceptance and use of ayahuasca therapy as a means of addressing the current mental health crisis among veterans, which is a huge, huge project. We're going to talk more about that too. The Heroic Hearts Project so far has raised over $150,000 in sponsorships from donors, including Dr. Bronner's, and has partnered with the world's leading ayahuasca treatment centers, as well as sponsoring psychiatric applications with the University of Colorado in Boulder and the University of Georgia. Jesse helps shape treatment programs and spreads awareness of plant medicine as a therapeutic method. He has spoken globally about psychedelics and mental health and received accolades, including being recognized as one of the social entrepreneurs to watch for in 2020 by cause artists. Driven by a mission to help military veterans struggling with mental trauma, he is best known for his own inspiring battle with PTSD and his own recovery through ayahuasca treatment. Jesse's work can be seen and heard at New York Times, Breaking Convention, San Francisco Psychedelic Liberty Summit, People of Purchase, The Freak, Psychedelics Today Podcast, Kyle Kingsbury Podcast, Cause Artist, WAMU 88.5, and The Growth Op. Wow, you know, that's an impressive bio, Jesse. And all I can tell you is uh, I'm very humbled and honored to have you here on Straight Outta Combat Radio. Hey, Jesse. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. I'm glad we finally uh, connected. I know it was a little bit back and forth, and especially with everything going on right now, it's it's nice to to connect and, you know, maybe distract our attentions from, from the current issues. Yeah, abs- absolutely, man. You know, we're right in the middle of this pandemic, and, and you're so right. Well, if we're going to be distracted, It's good that we're distracted to hear your story because the things that you're doing are just absolutely incredible and so badly needed. And there's more and more of this information out there. But what you're doing with the Heroic Hearts Project, that keeps like a tongue twister, is is just absolutely phenomenal. You know, but before we get there, tell us a little bit about 
the Gould family. Well, where did you grow up? And who were your mentors? And how did you even make it to the U.S. Army Ranger School? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, my path has always been and continues to be not, you know, the straightest arrow. It just it deviates. But within that, you know, different excursions, different experience in life, it's formed me of who I am and learned a lot in, in each each spot. So my, my parents are separated and I grew up in between Florida, a small town called New Smyrna Beach yep. and uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. So my sister and I went back and forth there. My dad is a lawyer. My sister is currently a lawyer. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom and uh, just did a lot of various jobs. Uh, she now has uh, some some apartments. But, you know, even even though they're separated, they're a very loving family, always very supportive. My own path, I was originally in finance. I went to uh, Cornell University, got a degree in economics. Uh, I was fortunate enough to graduate in 2009 at the heart of the the previous economic crisis. So... Uh-huh. <laughs> Exactly. So I, yeah, I get it. I get it. I just, I just have that that sort of luck following me, I guess. So, but I was, I was in a boutique investment bank. Uh, I was right during that that crisis. It was, it was another sort of crazy, perilous time. Nobody really knew what was next. Um, and it was around that time I, I, I knew that I wanted to join the military. It was just this growing energy, you know, that that alpha sort of thing in in your in your soul, the spirit that you can't ignore after a while. And, uh, you know, I just, I made the jump of like, I can delay the professional side, but I cannot delay this, this drive to join the military. Cause you know, it's a young man's game, if, especially if you want to go into special operations, there's a lot of wear and tear on your body. And just even to get in, you kind of have to be at, at your, your peak. And so I knew it was the time I knew everything else could be on hold. Did you have anybody in the background in your family that had been prior military? It really wasn't a military family. My my grandfather did serve. Both grandfathers, actually. My my one grandfather was in the Dutch resistance during World War II, and my other grandfather was a Marine uh, who served in the the Pacific. He was a, a mechanic. But neither well, my first my my Dutch grandfather uh, unfortunately passed away before I was of age, and my other grandfather never really spoke about it. You know, he was definitely haunted by it. But it was never really brought up. There was not really military memorabilia anywhere. It was a very unmilitary family. So, you know, that wasn't really a, a push to it. You had the calling, man. Yeah, and I felt very fortunate. Like I felt fortunate coming from a, a pretty humble means, being able to go to a great university and being able to have all these opportunities in front of me. And it's because of the country, the system of, you know, that's not possible everywhere else. And you know, in my mind, it's you have to give back to something greater than yourself at least one point in your life to to hold that humility and respect for things around you. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. So, so here you are, Cornell University graduate, and you and it's right after the big debacle. You know, the end of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and well, the beginning of it actually. But where did you go for for your basic training? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So just. Uh, I, like I said, I decided to go. It was a big shock to to everybody, including my family, my boss. Uh, I think my boss tried to bribe me not to go, but like you know, like we said, it was it was something I had to do. I knew I knew I'd, I'd end up at an old age and very regretful if I didn't. Just went to the the recruiter. You know, the recruiter had no idea about Rangers, so he told me all these long tales. But fortunately, I did my research. Actually, ended up getting a slot pretty quickly. So within a month of going to the recruiter, I was heading to Fort Benning, 
you know, scared there with all the other uh, new recruits. In my contract, I got the direct route. So did basic training, uh, went straight to Airborne, then went to, uh, it was one of the first classes of what they call RASP before it was RISP, RIP. Uh, so RASP is Ranger Assessment and Selection uh, Program. And so uh, it was, it's kind of a combination. It was RIP, but then uh, an add-on so that people that got through it would have a little bit more skills once they got to their, their battalion. So I went through that. You know, it, it lived up to all the nightmarish tales. <laughs> but fortunately, I was able to, to push, push through and persevere. Oh, sorry. Can you share one thing that happened maybe in Ranger school that, that you just went, holy cow, I mean, am I going to make it? Or you went, holy cow, I'm going to make it. Well, so this was before uh, Ranger School. So it, give it to the Army to make things as confusing as possible with the naming. <laughs> so the way the whole Ranger program works is to, to even be considered a Ranger and get uh, uh, into a Ranger platoon, you have to go through the selection process, which is RIP or RASP. And then once you are, uh, if you pass that and then you go to a Ranger platoon uh, or Ranger battalion, then if you prove yourself there once again, after about a year, maybe earlier, you have the opportunity to go to Ranger School. So Ranger School is like a leadership school. Everybody in the Army can do it, but it's essential for people in Ranger to go to Ranger School. So if you want to become a, a leader, if you want to be promoted to sergeant, it's absolute, everybody uh, who are, are infantry in uh, Ranger Battalion have to go to the Ranger School. So that's like down the line. So it's like the the future prospect of even more suffering. Um, oh, and, man. and, and the, the, I'd say like one of the hardest days in RASP was the within three days, just because the first an eight week program, the first week is very physical. It's all about cutting out people who just can't hack it on a mental, physical basis. You know, so just long runs, very intense, you know, any anything you take for granted in terms of comfort, it's taken away from you in, in some sort of means and fashion. And that first Wednesday, I went in there with a couple of guys who were really close friends and we, you know, made one of those packs of, hey, you know, we're not going to quit this. If anybody quits, talk to the other people before you go. Um, and I woke up one morning and, uh, everybody else that I came there with had quit just because it got to them. And so, you know, not only was I dealing with my own demons and struggles for this process, but then all of a sudden I found myself completely alone. And so it was just, you know, this very hard hitting day. And that was the one day where I was like, Hey, I'm going to keep pushing. I don't know if I can make it. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna quit. It's either gonna, they're gonna have to wheel me out through an ambulance or, or something. But fortunately, I was able to to persevere uh, and get past it barely by the skin of my teeth. But I, I got through. Well, congratulations on that. So, what was the graduation like for that? The graduation, I think, like most uh, military graduations, by the time you're there, you don't. You're you're almost annoyed at the graduation because it's all about like the, the the friends and family, which is great that they have that there. But at that point, you're just like, oh, man, more DNC, more drill and ceremony. You have to do all the practices for the graduation. It takes like a whole day. So you're doing just to, to have the appearance to your friends and family. You're just doing the same routine over and over again. And it's exhausting <laughs> after you feel accomplished. It really drains it out of you. But on the tail end of that, once it was all said and done, uh, my father, my sister and some really good friends that I've known since childhood 
uh, were there. We, we, we drove up to uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and just had like a, a very great weekend where, you know, I was, I was on top of the world, obviously, after that. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. So, so you graduate and you get off to your first duty station. Where did you go? I was, uh, I was stationed at uh, 175, so 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment in uh, Savannah, Georgia. And I was uh, in the mortar platoon. It was a little little trick Uncle Sam put on us. Oh, oh, Uncle Sam p- playing tricks, really? <laughs> yeah. So uh, they, they gave us the 11 X-ray uh, MOS designator. And what they didn't tell us uh, was that that was like a lottery system where you could either be a Bravo, which is the the – the straight line infantry or 11 Charlie, which is infantry with a mortar add on. And so it was literally in, uh, in processing and they divided the room in half and all because of being on that one side, I was, I was instantly a mortar, uh, which was interesting. I mean, like I said, at the end of the day, it wasn't the, the path I chose. It wasn't the one I expected, but it was one that I think gave me the most character. So where did you go to mortar, mortar school? Was it there in, in Savannah? No, the, the mortars happened right after basic training. So the we had a 15-week basic training. So I think it was a two additional weeks to the normal. And so you just had to qualify there. And then in Savannah, when I was in Ranger Platoon, uh, we just had to do additional training to, to, to get to the SOPs of Ranger Battalion, of, of how they do mortars. Um, and so it was interesting, but the, the, the mortar platoon and ranger is definitely the redhead, redheaded stepchild. And so there's a lot of self-loathing there and there's a lot of, uh, I mean, no matter what, you know, it's just a very competitive environment. And so everybody's looking for a way to put other people down, but it, the com- competition can, it depends on how you handle it, right? You know, you can either be stronger from it and use that competition to your advantage, or you can, uh, let it get to you. And so... Fortunately, I, I liked it. You know, I liked being the the underdog in a in a certain situation. And we, when I was able to become a leader, you know, I, I instilled that in my guys and and use that to help them make the best themselves the best people possible. Um, you know, the the mortars tended to be known as like maybe maybe dumb, maybe some rock eaters, but on the other side, you know, they they knew their stuff and they could just. You know, given given our uh, our skill set, we always carried all the the heavy equipment. And so when we worked with the the line platoons, you know, we were the ones that were able to cover down and help out and carry the the excess and 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 just really be a value added to whoever we were attached to. That's pretty cool. You know, I like the way you described that. So where what, where was your first deployment? Uh, all three were in Afghanistan. The first one was pretty interesting. The first year I was there, uh, I got there right when the way the Ranger platoon works there, there's three, there might be four now. I can't remember, but there, there definitely was three at that time. Um, and they just alternated in terms of deployment. So each one would be there about five months, come back, the next one would go. And, you know, that's kind of what may to this day, Ranger, Ranger Regiment, one of the longest continuously serving uh, regiments there is in, in the Army because it's just been, you know, constant. So people who, you know, I have a good buddy who was in for 20 years and he has 15 deployments under his belt of pretty high intensity action. So for me, uh, I got there right when people were coming back. So it gave me some time to fit in and, and learn all the all the protocols and, and 
prove myself once again, as, as happens in the military, you know, you're always, once you get to the next level, you're at the bottom of that next level. And so you have to work your way up. And so I was able to learn a lot of the skills. Uh, I ended up going into something called the fire direction control, which is really sort of the mind or the computers behind the mortars. So you learn the system, you learn how the mortar operates. For people who aren't familiar, it's it's a high angle uh, trajectory explosive. Uh, What's the so, range on the ones you guys had? Oh, you're, you're, you're giving me uh, <laughs> knowledge. I don't I'm probably gonna have to. I'm probably gonna get this wrong and then get some shit from my guys. So the the biggest one was the 120 millimeter, and so those were some pretty big uh, mortars, some pretty big explosive munitions, uh, and they they weighed about 30 to 40 pounds a piece, just to give you an idea. And that one was max range was about 7,200 meters. So it could, it could go pretty far. The smallest one, which was a 60 millimeter, you could either have it like mounted, which is more stable and more accurate, or you can have it handheld. And that one ranges from 1,000 meters to, to 3,500 3 3, meters about. So, you know, basically you're, you're bringing... Yeah, you can you can get pretty close, pretty close within it, especially in the in the combat situation. the The whole purpose, of, because it's a high angle trajectory, it can get over obstacles. Is that big? The bigger mortar is that on a vehicle, or is that a carried weapon? The the one twenty, they're either there was there was a few mounted at bases, so they just constantly they just not move. But then there is also. You could they, they could be mounted as well. So there are certain vehicles that uh, would have them on the back, and then those would be computer operated. For for Ranger, we we generally didn't uh, work with. We had them, and we'd have uh, be all trained up on them, and and use them if necessary. But uh, the the ones we mostly worked with were the eighty one millimeter and the sixty millimeter. So tell us about one of your missions. Where you know just tell us about. Where you went, holy cow, this is the, you know, now I'm in country, I'm in a combat environment, this is the real deal. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my, my first deployment, like I was mentioning before, it was a little weird because the first, when I was in battalion, I really used my time to be as proficient with as many systems and, and learn as much as possible. And fortunately, I, I gathered skills that some of my other peers didn't have or they you know they weren't technical on and so that first deployment uh i actually went to probably five or six bases all around the country uh and you know including you know bastion and all around and kandahar and and some smaller outposts but i was still you know i was still brand new cherry as they say you know i, th I think even just the the first mission uh you, you train so hard and just getting on the helicopter and then uh going into it and doing all the things but this time you know live where where your decisions really matter that was just a very surreal moment and i think that fortunately i had some good leaders and they they prepared me uh for it and so once you get to that point you're worried more about disappointing your leaders and the guys around you than you are about any external dangers and so you know i was definitely nervous but i was nervous for exactly that reason but uh, you know, every everybody who's new, they they 
you know, they trip and fall and make sort all sorts of mistakes and embarrass themselves. But, you know, as long as you come home and, and get through it. But yeah, it was, it was just, I think just going on that, that, that helicopter the first time was just that, uh, Hey, this is, this is real. You know, it was just that I, I remember having that almost self-reflective moment that was pretty profound. Wow. Thanks for sharing that too. And so, you know, what did you see there? I mean, what were the people like? What was going on in Afghanistan? So we, we had a very isolated sort of thing as opposed to what a lot of people see or what you see in the movies because Ranger tends to be more direct action style raids and, and, and missions. So based off of intelligence, you know, we would get some sort of word of there's a a person that needs to be uh, questioned or or picked up because you know they they might be making IEDs in the in the neighborhood or they're connected to a they're a general themselves in, in one of the terrorist organizations or they're connected to them or, or or what have you and so based off of our intelligence working with some other special operations groups um, we would we would go in there and try to find these people and essentially arrest them for for lack of a, a, a better term. Uh, and so in terms of our day-to-day, it wasn't like we were in the villages or we weren't necessarily interacting. We had our own like sp- specific spot and base and we would go do very specific missions and then you know hopefully come home, be successful, and then continue on. Depending on what outpost you're at, depends on the, the op tempo. And so like I said, I traveled around a lot and so it, it varied. Towards the end of my, my latter deployments, because um, I went in in 2010, and towards the end of it was already when they're one of the original talks of, of bringing people back from Afghanistan. So at that point, too, we're, we're more focused on training troops. So Rangers were helping out some special forces outposts. Uh, and so then we had a little bit more interaction with Afghani commandos and the special operations Afghanis over there. And so that was just, you know, training them based off of a certain protocol that, that we were given. Did you guys, you guys knew the mission then? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we had a pretty, especially, you know, when you're, when you're lower on the ranks, then you just, you know, you, you, everybody else is worried about that. But then, you know, as I got more senior, I had more input. And then a, a lot of it was just making sure my guys were prepared, well-trained over there. Uh, so that became its own, you know, unique turn to the deployment of not only being responsible for myself, but being responsible for, at one point, you know, 30, 30 people uh, in various locations across Afghanistan. So if you had to do it over again, would you? Yeah, 100%. Um, it, it really made me who I am. For whatever reason, I, I'm very thankful that I had that intuition, that, that gut drive to join the military. It was what I needed. It was that coming of age, becoming a man sort of ceremonial challenge that I think is really missing in modern culture. And I think a lot of people would benefit from it. Not necessarily the, the military itself, but just that, that, that sort of ceremonial, that sort of challenging kind of that dynamic. And there's there's not really many other places that you could have the complete mental, physical, spiritual, in a lot of ways, challenge and questioning that you can find in the military. It will find, you know, especially if if you opt to go for the the, the more challenging uh, parts of it, special operation, the the 
it will find a way to challenge each one of those those dynamics of yourself and really have you question and and hopefully fortify who you are. And so, you know, I am everything I am because of that experience. Uh, and I, I owe a lot to it. I owe a lot to the, the people and, you know, the, the leaders I saw that I, I learned, both good and bad leaders, that I learned myself how to become a leader. You know, I think that's the best way for people to become leaders is that they see the good aspects of it. They see the bad aspects of it. It's almost like dating. You know, sometimes you have to have a few bad relationships before you find that good one and you can be healthy in it. That's definitely a good way of looking at it. But, you know, you touched upon something here that's pretty important. You know, the military has a unique way, an inherent way of teaching you leadership skill sets directly and indirectly. And that's a key component, I think, to American fighting forces everywhere is that it's that type of system that's inside the culture itself. And it is something, you know, for those that haven't been in the military, it is, you know, it's a language almost. and. What's interesting is we can talk to anybody from really any branch of the service and from any time period, and there's that unspoken leadership type quality about it. Yeah, and that's what, you know, again, it was based off of intuition. I I opted to enlist instead of go the officer route, uh, just, you know, something I couldn't explain at that time, but makes perfect sense right now for me. And, you know, I think that really helped me develop, you know, it it put me at the grunt level, you know, in the dirt, in the mud with everybody else. And I really had to be with, you know, the rest of the soldiers and, and go up through the ranks to become a leader as opposed to going to officer candidate school and not, not knocking that, you know, there's, there's great officers, but for what I needed personally, I needed to go from, from that bottom, the very bottom basis route. But to, to, to your point too, I've traveled, you know, a lot to many different countries since then. And, and during that time, and there is that that basic warrior archetype, no matter where you go. Uh, I've found that in most countries, even if I don't speak the same language, there's this intimate sort of connection between service members. That's very cool to see when you when you go other places. Yeah, you're correct about that. We have something in common. I I got my degree from Florida State University, and when I went in, I was 26 years old, and of course, I was in much a lot before you know before you, but. I went in and as an I went in as a as a lower enlisted and and worked up through the ranks too. But I got out right before the first Gulf War. But I kind of went that route too, and I look back on it now after you describe it, and it was kind of a just a different type of calling, you know. Nothing wrong with the officers, but it was kind of interesting to be a NCO with a college degree. Yeah, kinda, exactly. Kind of cool. So you did three deployments in the combat zone. Correct. With with the regiment. Right. That's pretty good. Well, I'm glad you made it back. And I'm sorry for any of the people that you guys may have lost. Uh, my heart definitely goes out to those guys and to you and the people that you served with. What was your transition like? And, and were you happy with the with what you got in transition? Yeah. So, I mean, when I went in, I never really intended on it being... Uh, I never intended on being a professional soldier. You know, I, I full on respect people that can go in there, say, uh, but I knew by the time I was getting out, I, I knew I got it what I needed for for my service, for myself, for, for all sorts of different things. And I knew the timing was just perfect. And at that time, too, I was right when we were leaving Afghanistan. There's budget cuts, there's downsizing, there's all sorts of different pains happening. And so it just lended itself to being sort of the perfect time to transition and, you know, 
discover the next chapter of my life, whatever that would be. Uh, but I knew I needed a professional side and, and to actually make money or make a business as well, just to what I needed in my own journey. So immediately afterwards I got out and like everybody that gets out, you know, there's that, that initial excitement. I had some money saved. And so I took advantage of the freedom and I went traveling. I uh, went through Europe with some, a group of friends. I went through Asia. I stayed in uh, Cambodia for quite a while. And that whole time was again, just furthering the self-discovery, trying to figure out who I was post-military which was kind of hard to shake because you, you, you still feel in that. And so I probably made a few mistakes in, in terms of that invincibility that comes post-military. But I was also exploring. I was, I was trying to figure out like, hey, if I want to be an entrepreneur, can I start a business? Like, what would this be? You always hear about those stories, especially growing up of a guy like risking it all, going to some, you know, random country with just a hundred dollars in his wallet and making this successful business empire. And, you know, with the, the, my naiveness of getting out and given my background, I thought that was a little bit more <laughs> possible than it was. And so I explored that. I, I try to see what sort of business opportunities there were, uh, try to start a few things in Cambodia, you know, try to network was pretty unsuccessful, but just had a lot of great experiences while I was there. But at the same time, under all of that, you know, there was definitely something looming, uh, a growing dark cloud, I guess, that I was able to ignore by all the distraction of just traveling and being, you know, away and abroad. Uh, and so eventually I ended up moving back to Tampa, going back into finance. Uh, I, I got a job with this huge international debt lo uh, loss adjusters uh, corporation. So they're in like 60 different countries, 60,000 employees. The headquarters was in Tampa, Florida. And I was fortunate enough, they were just revamping their financial analysis department uh, because they were hitting some hard times. And so they needed sort of a new perspective on how to organize the business. And so it was almost like this entrepreneurial group within this major corporation. And so it was, it was the good transition to, you know, not waste my degree, go back into the finance, but without it being too oppressive, I guess, in the corporate sense. So you're talking about this dark cloud. What's going on with that? So that, and then when I was in Tampa, that's when it really started coming into my life more and more because my life all of a sudden stopped. I became in this corporate job, even like, as I mentioned, it was a little bit more on the entrepreneurial side to still had the corporate features. And, you know, I was renting an apartment again. I was doing the day-to-day -day sort of life. Everything was slowing down. There's less distraction. And then that's when I started noticing that, you know, I was getting a lot of anxiety attacks, sometimes super severe. You know, I had to call into work a few times sick just because I was so anxious. That would often, you know, devolve into a depression uh, where I just felt the world around me was bland. There's nothing I could do to distract me. It was just this, this, this gray sort of world that I put myself in. No matter what I would try to do, I just couldn't get to this happy state. And as many veterans do, I was I was uh, self-medicating pretty heavily with with alcohol. You know, I, I would use that as the means to even just pass the time. You know, when you're in that depressive state, you just want to 
you know, it might you might not be able to get past it, but you might be able to drink yourself to a point where you can, you know, just ignore it at least for some point. I guess it wouldn't make matters worse, but definitely sustained it is that I was a very I was very functional during all of it. You know, on the outside appearance, through outside appearance, nobody would know that I was struggling in this way. It was, it was a very internal sort of thing, and even with the drinking, it uh, I wasn't engaging in, in any sort of dangerous activities. Uh, I wasn't showing up to work drunk. Uh, I wasn't, you know, drinking and driving or anything like that. But I just knew all of that were leading to just a very unhealthy lifestyle. And I knew it just took one mistake that can completely change your life, you know? Oh, yeah. I know all about mistakes. That's what kind of changed my trajectory was a DUI. And, uh, and a TBI is a result of it that unleashed a bunch of demons, but I'm, and I'm doing well now. And so tell us, where was your tor- turning point? And then let us know, I mean, or tell us how you got the idea for the Heroic Hearts Project. Well, you know, your turning point and, and the organization you represent now. Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if there's just one point, but as, as the more I was working, the more it just became worse and worse. And no matter what I tried, you know, I tried to get back into good shape. I tried to be, I had a good social network. I tried to pick up cooking, exercise, meditation, everything, journaling, and it would help a little bit, but nothing would get me past that point. And as I continue with my job, it became more and more of like a corporate job and just less stimulating, less challenging. And so it was almost like the walls were coming in because no matter I needed to be stimulated, I needed some sort of distraction and everything in my life was, was starting to prevent that. So I went to the VA. Uh, I was just like, Hey, I know there's something going on. I'd appreciate to have a therapist to talk to maybe that, uh, you know, uh, there's there's always some benefit to talking to somebody, especially a professional. And unfortunately, uh, the the VA at the time, you know, it, not to any fault of the workers there, or any anything, just sort of the dynamic of this monstrous system. They said that you know through their protocol, they were so over overwhelmed with with patients that unless I was willing to do their full complete protocol, that they really couldn't help me. They couldn't just give me somebody to talk to. I would have to be open to going on medications and the talk therapy, and I I just wasn't uh, for myself personally interested at all in, in taking any SSRIs or anything like that. You know, I knew I could push not push through it, but I, I didn't want to go that route for, for my own reasons. And the, I guess the turning point was I just had that, I guess, again, intuition. Uh, at some point I knew I was unhappy with my job. I knew that needed to change. And I knew that eventually my habits, especially with the drinking would just lead to some decision, some point, one of those turn points that I couldn't take back that would hurt my life in the future. And so I knew I needed to make some sort of big change. At that same time, something called ayahuasca came across my radar. I came from, you know, sort of a generation, the dare generation where it was just say no. I, I you know, personally viewed most drugs as, I, I had no issue of people smoking pot or whatever, but it wasn't, it was none, of, no illegal substances were for me. I generally viewed all of it as some sort of escapism, some sort of illegal activity you know, not interested in psychedelics at all. But what I heard about ayahuasca, I approached it with skepticism. The more I read about it, 
I don't know, the more it grew in my mind. And at some point it just became, Hey, I just, I need to make a decision because I need to make some, something change big. I don't know what it is. This seems like an option. And so for whatever reason, I guess, again, that, that guiding intuition, I made that decision of, Hey, I got to leave my job. I'll, I'll do it respectfully. And I'm going to go to Peru to try this out and we'll, we'll see, you know, I, I'm going in there skept, completely skeptical, uh, but we'll see what it has to offer me. And I'm glad I did because that, you know, uh, recharted my, my future course and brought me here to speak to you today and help, you know, we've helped, uh, you know, dozens of veterans since then. Um, tell us, tell us about your own personal experience that first time you went down to Peru. What did, what happened? So, yeah. So as I said, uh, you know, I went in there extremely skeptical, you know, I, I, again, I viewed psychedelics as just this escapism, bringing false profound claims or, or whatever, but I was there. And so I was going to give it my all, uh, for, for people who don't know what ayahuasca is, it is a combination at its core of two plants that are found in the Amazon jungle uh, in Peru. And when you mix these two plants, one is a vine and one is a leaf. You boil it up and, and distill it and create this really pretty disgusting tasting drink, a uh, pretty thick, earthy drink. And when you drink that, it uh, puts you into this psychedelic state for about four hours. And so you're in this psychedelic state and, you know, viewing sort of the traditional kind of things of the, the, the shapes, patterns, colors, but they're also, which is what we've discovered now, if you put it in the right framework and mind frame, uh, there's a lot of therapy because it can allow you to see things from different perspectives, from outside your body, from a third person perspective, or really tap into some unconscious issues that you have been ignoring that may not be easily accessible when you are in a fully conscious state. Uh, so for me, when I went there, obviously not knowing any of this, uh, it was a very trying experience, uh, all out war. Having never done anything like that and having a very controlling mind, you know, the, the first uh, so it was a week. It was a week uh, time frame. You go there. You you find a center, and then you do you participate in four ceremonies uh, over the week. That's a pretty standard way of doing it. And so well, before we get started on that, but let's let the listeners know that you know what you describe has been going on for centuries, per- perhaps yeah. several thousand years, and and the I guess the. The causal molecule in there is a DMT molecule, which is a tryptophan. Am I am I correct? Yeah, that, that that's correct. So yeah, I mean these these all of these even what we're, what we're seeing now with with psilocybin, the what they call uh, magic mushrooms. A lot of these psych- psychedelics, you know, they co-evolved with the human race. That most or nearly every single culture has had some sort of shamanic medicine man healer practice at their origins and they almost always incorporated some sort of psychedelic whether it came from uh mushrooms or uh in this case ayahuasca and so the combination of that is something called dmt and it's called the spirit molecule for within the group because it does 
have this spirituality openness. A lot of people come from that. And that's not to say you're all, if you're an atheist, all of a sudden you're going to like believe in God, but you find your own spirituality in the, in the bigger sense of the word in terms of connectiveness, whether that's connectiveness to other people around you, connectiveness to nature, or even connectiveness to yourself of how you interplay in the world and in the system that's going on around you. Um, so it is, they're all very chemically similar, mushrooms and, and DMT, but each one has their very unique feel. And the interesting thing that researchers are finding out now is that, one, there has to be a reason that our brains respond to it. It's not an accident that the, the, these substances are the key that fit in the keyhole of the receptors in our brain. That, that is an evolutionary uh, design. So there was obviously use. And you see that in the the Amazon. Uh, these tribes have been doing it for for you know millennia. Uh, it goes back to a lot of their their cultural tra- traditions, and so that's generally a lot of what we we follow now. Um, because you know they've 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 been practicing with it for quite a while, so they tend to be the experts of it. So you went down there as as a self-professed control freak, trying to self-actualize. And what did you see that first episode? For me, it was just a. It was I had the 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 typical, as I, I would say, what you would view as a psychedelic experience in terms of um, it's a lot of patterns and uh, geometric shapes and and colors in terms of actual like images and stuff is is pretty pretty mild. But the the physical part was really what got me. It was just very intense. Uh, something that I can't necessarily describe, but just this intense feeling something's wrong. I'm uncomfortable. My, my body temperature was all up, you know, just, I couldn't sit still. It was just, and I kept, uh, part of the dynamic of, of ayahuasca is a, a purging aspect, which sounds horrible on the outside of that you're puking, but within the ceremony, it has some sort of purpose and it actually can feel good at, at some points. But with this one, because it was so hard, I was just puking throughout the night and just couldn't get past it. It, it just, it was my mind struggling with, uh, with this substance in it without, you know, trying to figure it out. But what, what I came to realize was that struggle was almost a representation of my own struggle in my mind. Uh, and this was just a more physical form of it. And so I had to figure out a way to come to terms with that if I was going to figure out how to come to terms with the issues I was dealing with in my mind. And that's kind of how a lot of this process works is for those that are struggling through it, you're struggling for a reason. You're struggling because that is the chaos that is going on in your mind as a result of TBI, as a result of trauma. So you, so you had four journeys, so to speak, and then you came back to the States when, what year was that? No, I actually stayed, I stayed abroad. So this was uh, early 2017. I did the four ceremonies. The first, like I said, we're all at war, but eventually through that, I overcame it and found this really peaceful tranquility and was able to work with it. But then also my mind just felt tranquil afterwards. It, uh, what I tell a lot of people is it almost felt like when you defrag a computer, you know, there's this process where you make the computer more efficient. It felt like it did that to my brain where it, where it made it work more efficient and I uh, wasn't as subject to these, these depressive states or these extreme swings. 
And then a lot of other benefits, just, you know, almost a complete absence of anxiety afterwards, social anxiety and other forms of anxiety, just how I reacted to stimulus before that would, you know, get me in these states just no longer had that effect on me. And so immediately afterwards, I, I had left my job, as I said, and so I was just trying to figure it out. You know, I had this profound experience. I knew it just was, it wasn't just this placebo, you know, me convincing myself. And so that's when the, the idea for heroic heart started to form. I continued to travel. I was in Colombia for a little bit. And that's when I started reaching out to fellow veterans, uh, and the Rangers and Special Forces, all sorts of services. And I started investigating how to make a nonprofit, how to make this work, kind of, you know, evolving in the back of my head. And when I got a lot of positive response from other veterans, that's when I pulled when I when I had to make the decision and make that leap of faith of like, hey, I have this I've experienced this sort of thing, and I think it can help a lot of my friends. And they at least deserve to know that this is out there and then they can make their appropriate choice. And given my background, especially in finance and some business, I knew I had the ability to make this something viable. And so at that point, it was almost this obligation of like, hey, you have the means, you have the knowledge, and you can help people. So there is an obligation for you to pursue this to its utmost. So that's when I started in April 1st, so pretty close to three-year anniversary right now, the Heroic Hearts pro- Project. I incorporated it, started the, the nonprofit paperwork, and this was all in like a small internet cafe in, in the middle of nowhere in Columbia. That's awesome, man. What a great story. So tell me the types of programs. We're getting ready to, 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 to go towards the last segment of the show, but tell me, tell us, the listeners, about the programs and can you tell us one or two success stories that y'all have had? Yeah, of course. So, you know, at the core, like I said, it's we're, we're not, you know, proselytizing it. We're not trying to make converters. We're not trying to force psychedelics on people that don't want it, but we're trying to offer a resource to those veterans that come to us, that come to this point where they've tried a lot of other therapy modalities and without success, they want to try something different. Or, you know, they're just at that point of life and they heard about this. So at the core, it's, it's this... You know, we offer information, we offer connections to centers that do it in a way we deem as safe and that will help the veteran because everybody has, you know, there's a lot of different traditions, especially now there's more economic incentive to create centers in in various places. So we just want to ensure that people are doing it right and not just to make another dollar and especially to protect veterans because obviously the last thing any one of us, you know, want to do, including yourself is you know, cause more harm to, to our brothers and sisters uh, who have served. So, you know, we, we have partnerships with various centers around the world. We provide financial scholarships because a lot of veterans are, especially those suffering from mental trauma, tend to need more financial support. Uh, so, you know, for instance, somebody comes to us, they fill out our application, they tell us about themselves, about themselves, what they're struggling with, if they need financial support. When we have donations and the funding, we will organize retreats with certain centers. So we'll get a group of veterans, we'll vet them, we'll make sure they're healthy, make sure you know there's no risks there. We'll gather the money necessary for it. We'll provide those scholarships and then connect them, providing all the logistics, make sure they get to these centers. 
the centers will do what they've been doing for a while with the help of these traditions, the, the, the indigenous shaman. And then on the tail end, once the veterans come back and hopefully have pretty profound experiences, then we continue the support as much as possible. So we provide coaching beforehand to prepare them. And then our coaches will follow up with these veterans to help them in something called integration, which is, you know, the psychedelic can be it's pretty unusual. Uh, most of us are not used to it, and it can bring a lot of revelations, a lot of new insights, a lot of metaphorical answers that you might not know the meaning of. And a lot of the process afterwards is figuring out how to incorporate these things into your life to set you up for success. And that's really what we emphasize with all of this is it really takes a lot of work on the individual. This is not a magic pill. It's not for everybody. But if you put in a lot of work before and afterwards, it can really change your life, give you a leg up on, give you that extra boost uh, to get past the demons, get past the dark clouds. Uh, but it does take that that follow up. It does take, you know, inc- like anything in the military, you have to make, you know, your, your plan, you have to design it, and then you have to follow through with it. If there are changes and things you don't expect, then you have to have contingency plans as well. The same thing with everybody's mental health of, Hey, you say you're going to go back to the gym, but how can we make sure, how can we hold you accountable so this is not a New Year's resolution? How can we make sure that you maintain the enthusiasm you have right now? Yeah, you know, I I like the fact that you don't push it on people because, and and you're totally right, it isn't for everybody. And, you know, Jesse, what you pointed out here is that anything in life is going to take work. You have to do the work. And, introspection, self-introspection and self-improvement is probably the tough work that any of us as a human being will ever do. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, this just allow, it's a tool. That's what we always tell people. And, you know, ayahuasca is one we've worked with other psychedelics and other modalities as well. You know, our whole thing is just connect veterans to effective therapy. Right now, psychedelics tend to be leading the, the, the charge on that because they, they, even in the research that we're doing right now, are well above the effectiveness of any SSRI or medication or traditional talk therapy. Uh, We do this in contingency to talk therapy, and that's a a multiplier. But psychedelics right now, uh, you're seeing with psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, they are providing these tools to veterans and the the rest of uh, humanity that with success rates that we haven't seen at all. And so it's, it's definitely becoming a revolution in mental health. Tell us about one success story that y'all have had with heroic hearts. So I'll, I'll tell you, uh, recently we had a, a guy named Rudy, uh, who was a, a green beret, uh, and then, uh, has done a lot of stuff, was a sniper instructor and just, you know, a very imposing figure, very tall, very big guy. When I first met him, we did a retreat with him in Costa Rica, and you could tell he was like regretting his decision, like, what the hell am I doing here? What did I sign up for? You know, just a man of few words, and he went through the experience, and you could tell he was but under the surface struggling with a lot of stuff. And even just after the first and second ceremony, just this complete alteration, this complete transition in who he was. I guess that's the wrong... He was still the same Rudy, but it was almost you know like a sports car that got a lot of dust and grime on it and it's still you could tell it's it's the sports car it's the mustang 
but it's not until you you wash away all that that grime that you really see like how spectacular and preserved it was and so that was the same thing of like him in this process completely revitalized him changed his life and he later you know told me a story that it was weird interacting with his wife. She was a little bit uncertain at first, but he had been with him since her since uh since college, and she said that he almost changed the pre-military Rudy. You know, he still had the good aspects and the the discipline and all that. It wasn't you know it wasn't this change, but he had that li- that that life in him. He had that that humor, that that ability to to fool around a little bit. And he told me a story of I was on the phone call with him, and he was just talking about everything and he said this unique thing happened yesterday where he woke up early with his kid uh, his 10 year old son and they're making pancakes and just he was just enjoying it and his kid ended up a little bit late for school and he was saying that like in the past because he was so military centric he would have like freaked out and got upset of like no we can't have my kid miss the bus he needs to go there this this is the timeline but this time post ayahuasca he was just like, hey, I'm enjoying, I'm making pancakes with my kid. This is awesome. You know, we can catch another bus. I can get him there. It's not the worst thing in the world. And he just really found absolute joy in that moment. And so stories like that are amazing because that's the ability of a person to recapture the joy in life, which, you know, life is hard as we see now. There, There's a lot of ups and downs, but you know, there is this, this, we are very lucky to be alive and there are these magical moments that if we, you know, really take the time to focus on, that's the meaning of life right there. You know, enjoying these small moments, these, 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 these small pockets of joy that can help us get through these, these hard times. You know, uh, no doubt, you know, let me ask you this. What does freedom mean to you? That's that's a tough question. I mean, I think that's always like a, a moving spectrum. Uh, and you know, I, I think I think freedom, especially with what I'm operating, is the the freedom to do what you need to do to protect yourself and your family as long as it's not negatively impacting the lives of others, right? So, for instance, with this. I do believe that veterans should have the right to heal themselves through this dynamic. They should have the right to regain their health, their sanity, even if people are a little bit skeptical of it, as long as it's not hurting anybody else. You know, I can understand, you know, anger around somebody taking meth because then they're going to rob and and steal and possibly become violent or whatever. And that's understandable. You know, you don't want to be in that situation. But something like this, which is nobody's hurting anybody else, I think that is a freedom that is denied to us right now. Me personally, and I'm sure you are the same, you know, there's not, even if it's illegal, there's not somebody that is going to prevent me from protecting myself and my family, right? So, and that that goes to mental health, that goes to every sort of thing. So even if the laws change, I'm going to protect these things that are in my my close circle. I'm not going to inhibit anybody else's rights, but something like this that's as passive of, as me, you know, in the U.S. doing something illegal to regain my life, uh, I have zero issue with doing that. Well, that's you know definitely a conviction that that means a lot because I don't think there's any greater service out of uniform than when you can actually help somebody you know regain their dignity, regain their self-respect, their self-esteem, their health, their mental health. I mean, it's definitely a valiant mission. 
Not for everybody, I get that, but your approach is definitely not recreational. It's all therapeutic. You know, how can people find out more information about Heroic Hearts Project? So, you know, we have a, we have a website, heroicheartsproject.org. Uh, you know, you can easily Google search ayahuasca psychedelics veterans will come up pretty quickly. We're on all the, the social medias. Our main one is Instagram. Uh, again, just search Heroic Hearts Project. As I mentioned before, you know, we are a nonprofit. Uh, all of our ability to help veterans comes directly out of the kindness of others, people donating money, people donating time. We have an ambassadors program. So even if people, you know, don't have the money to help, they can help by donating time, help by donating their skill set. Uh, so, you know, from wherever you can help, reach out to us through those means and, you know, help us save more veteran lives. Well, Jesse, let me ask you this, man. Do you have a personal mantra that you live by every day? I wouldn't, nothing in concise words, but it's always, you know, my, my issue is getting too far ahead of myself. So as much as I can on a day-to-day basis, bring it into the present. What can I do right now? What should I be appreciative now? You know, just as whatever questions bring me back to where I am right now to, 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 to appreciate it, that is my daily mantra. Um, there's like this one show of, one of the characters said it, it's it's unfortunate that the good old days you know, you don't realize that they're the good old days until they've already passed right and so as as trouble and trying as some days can be I'm very fortunate to to be in this work and do do this and you know I, I really want to try to take advantage of that and appreciate it in the moment. That's awesome, Jesse. You know I just really appreciate you sharing with us your story today and you know ways that. You continue on with the mission to help humanity. And for the listeners out there, we've been having a great conversation with United States Army Ranger veteran Jesse Gould, who's the founder and president of the Heroic Hearts Project, which is a uh, an organization on a mission to help people regain a their lives. And I, I we we respect you and and we support everything that you do. And, uh, all I can say is drive on, you know, I could say Fido and, but you know, you're doing great things, so we can't go there, but you're going there. And, uh, if there's anything we can do, green zone hero, straight out of combat radio to get the word out, I got to tell you, Jesse, we got your six. I appreciate John. And, uh, you know, thank, thank you so much for your help and pleasure talking with you, but you know, thank you for helping us spread our message and, and sharing this with your audience. Our pleasure. Thanks, Jesse. Have a good one. Stay safe, stay healthy. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember freedom is not free. And combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.